Good morning, everyone. It is absolutely a pleasure to be up here this morning and to have the opportunity to share with you all the Word of God. Um, I'm extremely excited for what we're going to talk about today, and I'm just very happy that I have the opportunity to open up with a new series that we're doing. And that new series is called A Life Worthy. And so I've been going through a season where God has been doing a lot of hard but good work in my life. Um, a lot of misconceptions I've had about myself and about the world, about how to handle pain, about even God himself. Um, he's been working in me in helping to bring those things to the surface and, and heal them. And just this past week, I had an opportunity to uh, meet with one of our, our youth group alumni. And it was such an amazing time just to be able to uh, use the things that God has been teaching me and pass them along to someone else. And so what I'm really hoping for this morning is as we take a look um, in the book of Philippians, which is what this series is going to go through, we can begin to understand how do we live a life that is, that is worthy? How do we live a life uh, that is full? What exactly does that even mean? So you can see right here that the title of today's message is going to be Fellowship in the Gospel. And I, I want to open up with a story of one of my best memories from college. So many of you know my background is mechanical engineering. I went to the College of New Jersey, graduated back in 2013. And I had a fantastic time um, with campus ministry when I was there. That was actually where I formed a lot of my friendships that I believe will last for just about my entire life. And one particular memory I have was a big hangout slash cook session that some friends and I did. So I think I was about a, I think I was a junior at the time at TCNJ. And so a group of us from our university chapter were like, hey, you know, like we should do something fun, you know, get together and kind of just like have like a really good like, you know, fellowshipping time. Just like something that just is really heart feeling, heartwarming. And so some friends that we had met at another university conference that lived up in upstate New York actually came down to TCNJ to visit us and spend the weekend with us. And so we planned this whole big thing where we all like went out grocery shopping. We pretty much stormed our local shop, right? Bought a bunch of ingredients, brought it back to one of my friends off campus houses. And we basically cooked a, a, a massive feast and we ate together. And I remember that day like it was yesterday, and it was one of the, honestly, it was one of the best days of my life. No drama, everyone agreed. It was almost as if like we were thinking the other thoughts that another person was thinking. We went out, we goofed off at the grocery store. This person got this, this person got that, came back, cooked, ate good food, and then just talked and told jokes. It, it really felt like maybe this was a glimpse into what heaven could be like or, or would be like, right? And I never forgot that memory. And so that's something that is a reality that the Lord wants for all of us when it comes to fellowship, right? When it comes to being family. So we're going to take a look at what, what is fellowshipping in the gospel? What does it mean to be united in that way? Is it, turn it on? It's done. Ah. Difficulties. Let's see if the engineer can figure out technology.
Maybe it's the battery. I don't know. No, it's on. I use my mouse. We, we have ways around these things. All right. All right, so in looking at fellowshipping in the gospel, I have some questions that I want to pose to us. What is it that makes a life worthy? How do we live well? And, and who defines what a worthy life is? Because there, there are many different opinions on this. So we could take our cues from the world, all right? Um, there are many things in, in life that the world would say, hey, this is what makes a life worthy. This is what makes life worth living, right? Money, career, relationships, love, peace, acceptance. And I, I could fill this entire screen with different things. And you know the funny part about this? Those aren't bad things. It's not bad to make money. It's not bad to have a good career. It's not bad to enjoy healthy relationships and love and peace and acceptance. Like these are good things. And I don't want to insert the mistake that these are bad things that we shouldn't desire because that's not true. However, is that our starting point for a worthy life? Okay, so these are the things that the world says, okay, like if you start with these things, like you have a worthy life, like you're good, right? You're golden. Let's see, what does God have to say? In my 28 years of being a Christian, I think it boils down to one thing. God says, all you need is me. So if you want to have a worthy life, you don't start with the desire. You start with the ultimate person, who's God. So we only need God to make life worthy. And I want you to make a, a huge note of that. All the other gifts that we receive in this world, all the things that we enjoy, all the things that give us a sense of fulfillment, those are good things, but those are gifts. We don't start with the gift, we start with the giver, right? So life starts with God. So the point here that I want to introduce with is that if God makes life worth it, we need to be connected to him, right? And the gospel brings us to God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the gospel, we know, centers on the work of Jesus Christ. It centers on the work of the Son. So fellowshipping in the gospel. So we're going to look at Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. So if you have your Bibles take them out because we're going to get ready to go into that. And as I was studying this and preparing for the sermon, I, I saw two main divisions in this section of scripture. So the Apostle Paul, he writes this letter to the Philippian church. And as we go throughout the book of Philippians, you're going to find that the main, some of the main themes in this book is centering on the gospel and, and the work of evangelism and sharing the good news and persevering in the midst of persecution and in the midst of hardship while sharing this good news, right? And then, so the first part of this section, Paul focuses a lot on thankfulness. He focuses on love and he focuses on encouraging the Philippian church. 
And in the second section, Paul has this amazing prayer. And so I called it the grand prayer of love, unity, and God's glory. And his thankfulness and his love for the church explodes into this place where he begins praying over them. And he begins praying for them and and for their spiritual growth and for their spiritual unity. So we're going to take a look at that. So here's some different themes. And if you want to jot down a few of these, you can. But there's so many different themes in just these 11 verses, talking about joy, thankfulness, being others-focused, perseverance, unity, sanctification, love, discernment, good works. All of these different things are in this verse. And trust me, you could spend, honestly, I believe, like several Sundays just talking about these 11 verses after, like, I spent time preparing for this. I was like, I can't believe there's so much here. I always find that every time I prepare for a sermon, I actually, I think, I I end up getting the biggest benefit because I've had to spend, you know, weeks preparing for it and praying over it. And so it's been a wonderful journey for me. So I want to strike us here with the core message, and that core message is that the gospel is central to our entire existence. Right? The gospel is central to our entire existence. And Jesus is the center of the gospel. Therefore, Jesus is central to our entire existence. And so, obviously, I think two questions we need to understand is, what is the gospel? And we need to understand that to answer the question, what does it mean to fellowship in the gospel? So I'm sure a lot of you have seen this uh, verse here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which is widely regarded to be the quintessential verse to define the gospel. Like if you're looking for a, a biblical textbook definition almost, go to this verse. And it says here, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and he was buried, and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. Right? So that's a gospel summary right there. And fellowship, I put together a few words on how would we define fellowship? Like, what does it mean if I fellowship with you? You know, does it just mean we're buds? Does it just mean, like, what does that exactly mean? And so here, ways I would define fellowship is close association with someone, having a, a, a common and a unifying interest or mission, being others focused, having relationships that are filled with love and relationships that are intimate. These are all things that define fellowship, right? So in a sense, putting the two together, fellowshipping the gospel is being unified in the gospel, having the gospel change our our behavior, change our actions, having the, the gospel transform us into the people we're meant to be in this family. So Philippians chapter one, verses one through 11. So it says here, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and the deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine making request for you with all joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. 
for you, for all, for you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And then here's his prayer. So he says here, as he prays over them and for them, and this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So that's Paul's huge prayer. Um, I don't know about you. I, I love the Apostle Paul, but if there's one thing, just be blunt, I'm going to criticize him for it. It's, it's all the run-on sentences, man. It's, uh, it's I, 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 let me tell you something. I was reading this, and it was so complicated, I had to go to, through different translations just to try and break down things and then, like, draw flow charts just to kind of, like, because everything is just jammed together, right? So I really wanted to make sure that I was breaking this down properly and I was really understanding what he was saying because sometimes the way he structures things, it's not the way that we speak to today. Um, and it makes it harder to understand. But as I began this process of breaking it down and trying to synthesize uh, this, this passage of scripture, there were seven aspects of this phrase he uses, right? Um, fellowshipping in the gospel. There's seven aspects that I found as I was looking at this. And these aspects are up on the screen. The first one is... Um, Truth, knowledge, and doctrine. The second is perseverance. The third is sanctification and lifestyle. The fourth is evangelism slash work, you know, being spiritual work, and persecution. The fifth is grace. The sixth is love, oneness, or family. And the seventh is fruit, results, and actions to God's glory. So right in those 11 verses, these are things that I truly believe the Lord laid on my heart. I saw seven things that are all different aspects of fellowshipping in the gospel. And the gospel is the good news of how Jesus saved us, right? So from that good news that Jesus saved your soul when you put your faith in him, there are seven things that pop out from putting your faith in Christ and believing the gospel, living according to the gospel. So, starting at verse 3, we're going to break it down verse by verse, and, and we're going to talk about this. So, here we see, Paul says, he starts off by saying, I thank God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy. So, right away, we see here that Paul starts off by saying, I, I, I'm thankful for you. And not only am I thankful for you, I remember you. This is a situation where it's not out of sight, out of mind. He's saying he remembers them consistently. And when he does, it brings him great joy. It brings him great satisfaction to think about his church family. One of the things that the Lord really laid on my heart um, over the years as I grew in my faith and wrestled with him on different things one particular thing has always stuck with me. I remember one day uh, a friend was talking to me about um, some really hard times they were going through. And I, I was listening to them. You know, I tried to comfort them as best as I could, you know, biblically and, and things like that, giving them wisdom and advice. And then I remember that I ended with saying, I'll definitely keep that in prayer. 
I'll tell you what happened. So for some reason, and praise God, it was the Holy Spirit, I said that, and then immediately my next thought was, you ain't going to remember. <laughs> You're not going to remember. And I, got, and, I, and I felt conviction. And I realized, wow, you know, I actually have the habit of throwing out this Christianese phrase, and then I actually don't do it. Oh, yeah, I'm going to pray for you. I go home, and I go about my day. I don't even remember to do that. Like, I completely forget about doing it. How often do we have moments like that where we say a Christian nice-sounding platitude or phrase or we say we're going to remember someone, but then we don't actually? How often does that happen? One of the things that I have definitely felt called to do now is, if possible, when I know someone has a prayer request, if I have my phone next to me, I write a quick note. If I have a piece of paper and a pen, like I write a note to myself because I want to take it seriously to pray for them. Um, if I can't do that, I pray to the Lord to help me to remember if life is really chaotic. And then I honestly just offer a quick prayer, if, if appropriate and possible, out loud with them or just in my heart, right in my mind. And so I was really struck when Paul starts off talking about this because he's remembering them and he cares about them and he loves them and they are a source of joy for him. Next, he goes from talking about how thankful he is for the Philippian church to saying that he's filled with joy. And he gives a reason for his joy. And that reason here in verse 5 is for their fellowship in the gospel. And this fellowship that they have has continued from the first day until now. And so we see that there is this progression that is happening. He's saying he's thankful for them. He's saying he's joyful every time he prays about them. And then he says, why is he joyful? Because they're persevering in their faith. They've been continuing since the first time they heard about the good news, put their faith in the good news to the present time. And so something I was really struck with here is truth and knowledge and doctrine. And obviously with this being a short session, we don't have time to go into all the details so this is going to be a little quick, but the gospel in, in its inherent form, you could say, is information, right? It's information about the state of the world. It's information about the state of humanity. It's information about what God is doing about that and how this relates to us. And, and it's information that isn't false. It's information that is truth. So an aspect of fellowshipping in the gospel is, is truth. The gospel is truth. So how many times are we soaking ourselves in the knowledge of this truth? Are we spending time learning biblically faithful teachings, not just simply on what the gospel is, but what does that imply for us? Okay, if Jesus Christ died and rose again and I put my faith in him, what does that mean for my life? What does it mean when um, my kid is really frustrating me right, right now and I'm at my wit's end? What does it mean? What does it mean where I was hoping my spouse would understand something I was trying to tell them they didn't understand? What does it mean when I'm at work and I just got a crazy project that I have to finish within three months? Um, not talking from experience, cough, cough. But anyway, so what does the gospel mean for our lives? 
think about it practically, right? What does this truth and knowledge mean? The gospel isn't any old message. It's a very specific message. And we as believers have to be constantly preaching this truth and this knowledge to ourselves and growing in this teaching. The second thing that um, occurred to me here is perseverance as another aspect of fellowshipping in the gospel, persevering in faith. So remember, Paul is specifically saying here, he's not just happy that they, they believe, but he's happy that they're persevering. We are called to persevere as believers. And, and that is actually necessary for us to see God. In Hebrews chapter 10, verses 38 through 39, it talks about the whole um, thing of perseverance. And in there, in his encouragement to the Hebrew church to persevere in the midst of persecution, he mentions to them several important truths. One of them being is that you've looked at it, the Israelites in the past and you saw how their unbelief called, caused them to miss the promise, how they died in the wilderness. And you know that, and, and, and God has a phrase here, and he said, and I'm going to paraphrase, basically he was saying, um, the soul that draws back, I have no pleasure in him. But then Paul reassures them by saying, but I'm confident that we aren't the ones who will draw back, but you know, who, who will continue in faith and be saved. That's a paraphrase of what he was saying in Hebrews 10, 38, and 39. All right? So we are called to persevere. And, and sometimes that can seem scary. We all have issues and struggles, and sometimes it can cause us to doubt. But the next thing that Paul does here is he reassures the Philippian church. He then says that he has joy that they have fellowship in the gospel and they're continuing. And not only does he have joy in the fact that they're continuing, he's confident they're going to stay and they're going to keep continuing. And so he says here, he's confident of this very thing, that he who has began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so another aspect I see here is sanctification and, and our lifestyle. Okay? I am so thankful for this, and I want to tell you this too. You are not alone. You are not the one powering your sanctification. God is helping you. God is the one who started this work inside of you, and he's going to complete it. You do not have to worry. So many times there have been situations where believers would have such um, fear over their assurance and their confidence in their salvation. And if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you do not need to be afraid. God will continue to grow and develop you. As we know, there's um, the one verse where it says, um, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So the responsibility is still yours to work. You still have to make a decision to work. You still have to make a decision to obey. You still have to make a decision to do things that feed you and feed your faith, right? But then there's something else that happens. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Why? Because it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. So the reason we can work is because God is inside of us working. So you're not alone in this. You're not alone in this process of continuing in faith, continuing your, in your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we continue in this, there is a change in our life, the process of sanctification, right? Sanctification is connected to our lifestyle. I'm sure each and every one of us knows someone who claims to know God, but their actions show completely different things, right? Now, I'm not saying if someone is having a time of rebellion that it necessarily means they're not saved. Ultimately, God knows the heart, and I do not believe we're called to judge their heart. But I'm going to say this. 
as we move and mature in our faith, our lives should be changing. All right? Fruit is not, fruit does not make the tree alive. Fruit is simply a sign that the tree is alive. Right? And if that tree is our faith, the sign that our faith is living and growing is the fruit. But the fruit doesn't make our faith active. Jesus Christ is the one who makes our faith active when we trust him. Right? He's the author and finisher of our faith. So we, ha- we have this confidence that we are not alone in this process. God is working through us as we continue to live out the implica- implications of the gospel. And then verse 7, here's one of the worst run-on sentences in this section, but we're going to read it. So he says, just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. Okay, I did not say that in one breath. But this is really important for us to break down. So right here, he goes now and he's saying, this confidence that I have in you is justified. And he says, why is it justified? Well, it's justified because I have you in my heart. And then he connects that part with this word, in as much as. Um, we don't really say that right now. But another synonym for it, a, a good replacement word, is since or because. So he's saying, my confidence is justified because I have you in my heart. And I have you in my heart since both in my chains and defense and confirmation of the gospel, you are partakers with me of grace. And so we see another aspect here of fellowshipping the gospel, which is the work of evangelism, the work of of serving God in his kingdom, and the work of, of enduring persecution. And so each and every person here is called to share the gospel. Each and every person here, whether you're young or old, is called to share the good news, both through their actions and verbally. I'm going to say it verbally, because sometimes there's this whole idea that, oh, well, I just preach through my actions. And it's like, your actions could mean a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Tell them about Jesus. Be specific. They need to know about Jesus. Not just good works, right? But good works can help you show them Christ and then tell them about Christ. Because they can look at your actions and say, it matches what you're saying to me. It matches this good news. When I was um, uh, mentoring um, the, the one uh, youth grouper who is an alumni now, one of the things he talked about that was a frustration for him was why would God call us all to share this good news if he hasn't gifted us all with teaching and with, an, and with evangelism and things like that. And I said to him, just because you don't have that particular gift doesn't mean you can't share. God still gives grace for us to do all sorts of things. If you have, if you know Christ, you can talk about him. You're talking about someone who you love. You're talking about what he's done for you. Just simply share, this is what Christ has done for me. This is what I believe. Right? So we're all called to do that. And then concerning persecution, as we know, Paul was a man who went through a lot of sorrow in life. Everything from being shipwrecked to being thrown in prison to being stoned and beaten. Um, And then even worse pains, I think this is a deeper kind of pain than just physical pain, he's even suffered uh, his own fellow brothers and sisters in the church attacking him 
Now, that's, that's a deeper kind of pain. There's, there's kind of pains that are outside of you, but the pains that come from someone you trust, that, that's particularly hurtful, right? But he persevered. And one of the things he's saying is that in my work and in my suffering, we're actually united. We're partakers of the same grace. And so he's recognizing that they share a common mission. And since they share this common mission of serving the Lord, they share in the same grace that comes from the Lord. Catch me? So it's a common mission, and it's a common power source, God's grace. They are both partakers in God's grace. And so he says here, for God is my witness of how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And so this grace now transfers into operating on his heart. And what he's saying here is not only is my love for you great, not only is my love for you with the same affection as Jesus Christ has, but God knows this is true too. So he's building this really interesting argument throughout the entire verses. He's saying, I'm joyful for you. Um, you're continuing the faith. I'm confident you're going to continue faith because God's going to complete this work. And, and it's right for me to feel this confident because I love you. And the reason why I love you so much is because God's grace has brought us together. And God himself knows this is all true, right? This is logical flow that he's building. And so this all then comes into this prayer that he offers. And he says here, and this I pray that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment. And right here, there's this whole imagery that the Apostle Paul brings to mind of love, of oneness, and of family, of this, of this special kind of unity that, that would develop. And so he says, I want your love to abound. And notice his choice of words. One thing that has been very helpful in Scripture is God is very specific with his words. There's a reason why God uses one word and laid that on the heart of the, of the writer as opposed to another word. So Paul doesn't say here that I hope that your love would meet minimum requirements if there is such a thing. That's not what he's saying here. What is he saying? Look again. He says, I pray that your love may abound. So I'm praying that your love would continue to spill over and over, that it's going to grow and keep growing, that it's, just, it's never going to stop. It's going to get deeper. It's going to get wider. I, I want your love to abound and to overflow. I want there to be this, this unity in the church among you, all of you. One Bible verse that I, I've been meditating on here and there as it comes back to mind, um, it's in one of the epistles. I don't remember the reference right now, but it talks about the fact that um, we shouldn't just be only concerned with our own interests, but we should also be concerned with the interests of others. When you come here to church, when you come here to breaking of bread, when you come here to worship and to sing songs, it's all right to think about what you need from the Lord because he is here to meet you in this place. But do you also consider other people's interests? Maybe you talked to someone last Sunday and they were telling you about a really hard time. Do you take the time maybe to follow up and ask how they're doing? Maybe step aside for a minute and pray with them. Or if the relationship and friendship is growing stronger, like invite them over. Whatever that looks like, whatever God leads you to do. Are you thinking about others in your faith? Or do you find that your faith basically surrounds yourself? 
Because our faith and our love should drive us to be others-focused. We should have a genuine interest in other people and the things that they're going through, the things that they're working on, working towards, so that they can be more like Christ. All right? But then he also conditions this, and he says, it's not that I simply just want your love to grow. I want it to abound more and more in knowledge and discernment. And so I want your love to abound in knowledge, in information on what is the truth, all right? Love must be informed. Ignorant love ultimately is not loving. It's ultimately not helpful. Ignorant love, at its least, maybe can lead to some misconceptions, but at its worst, it can hurt people. Classic example I have. Um, real funny short story as we head to the end, but um, when I was a kid, I hated vaccinations. And when I say I hated vaccinations, I mean as in I would cry and scream and literally like writhe in the seat as a doctor came with the needle. I specifically have a memory in my mind when I was, I think, actually I don't even remember how old I was. I was very young, but anyway, we went, my dad took me to the doctor, had to get one of my vaccinations. And I specifically remember what happened. I remember the doctor coming up with the needle. And as soon as I saw that thing, I started screaming. And I knew it was bad because even though I was a little kid, the, the, the assistant went to the door and barred the door with her body because she said, this little boy is acting up so bad, I think he will actually break the strength of two grown men and run out the window. <laughs> like, like it, that's how, and I still remember that clear as day, right? Now, would it have been loving for my father to say, I know this is going to hurt, so I'm not going to take you to the doctor to get a vaccination? That's ignorance. There are diseases out there. If I don't get it, I could get sick. And then that can affect other people. So because he has a love for me that's informed by knowledge, he can make an appropriate decision on how to help me. Right? So our love has to be affirmed and informed by truth. We live in a society where there's this big idea that loving someone means they do whatever they want. Or loving someone means you don't tell them when they're going down the wrong path. And that's not true. Our love must be informed by truth, and we must be willing to speak that truth in love. And our love must be informed by discernment, being able to know what is right, what is wrong, what is the best thing to do. And that's what he says right here in verse 10. He says that he wants our love to have this discernment so that we can approve of the things that are excellent. And that word approve in the Greek, it has the whole idea of, of testing something and then being able to make a determination, okay, this is the best thing, right? So you test it and you're like, I can discern, I can see this is the best thing for that person, right? And then he goes here, and in verse 10, he says that he wants them to be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. And what he's saying here is not only does he want their love to grow and, and to be informed by knowledge, to be informed by truth, he's saying here that I want you to be, be sincere. And if you go back into the Greek, sometimes it helps us understand exactly what he's meaning there. And, and the word sincere, um, it, it carries a cultural connotation of, of this whole idea of being without wax. And to explain that, what used to happen back in the day is 
when you had pottery makers, um, sometimes they would make a pot and cracks would develop. And what they would do to still sell the product is they would fill in the cracks with wax and they would paint over it, right? So what people do as they're buying pottery is to make sure that, hey, this is a whole item, it, it doesn't have defects, is they would hold it up to the light and if they saw the, the sun shining through the cracks, they would realize, okay, you're selling me a defective product, right? It's incomplete. He's saying here, I want those cracks in your life, those incomplete areas to be filled, that you would be perfected, that you would grow. And I want you to be without offense to the day of Christ. And that whole idea of being without offense, once again, going back to the Greek, is the idea that I don't want you to be a stumbling block. The word can literally be translated as such. Like, I don't want you to be rough, a.k.a. something that would cause other people to stumble or cause your own conscience to stumble. And I want you to be like this until Christ comes back. And then in verse 11, he talks about what he's praying that this would result in. And so he says here that what I desire is that you would be filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ. So we have another aspect, the seventh aspect of fellowshipping the gospel. The gospel should change us. In other words, this aspect of fellowshipping the gospel should result in fruits, various results, and actions to God's glory. Jesus didn't wait for us to change to save us. He saved us to change us. Right? Jesus did not wait for us to change to save us. He saved us to change us. So when we are fellowshipping in this truth, it should be a truth that transforms us. It should be a truth that transforms how we treat people, how we respond to life, and how we relate to God. And it should result in further and further growth in our lives that would glorify God. And to, and to the glory and praise of God, it all starts with him and it all ends with him. People need to know who God is. He's good. People need to see that. And what I want to leave with you is that your testimony is significant. No matter what you've been through, whether it's something that we may stereotypically think is a good testimony because it had some crazy drama and then God came through, or something that seems incredibly ordinary. Maybe you grew up in church all your life. No matter what it is, your testimony is significant because your testimony is showing how God is changing you. You are proof. And when people look at that, when people see that, wow, you were really compassionate when that other person was really harsh with you. Okay, you, you went through a huge tragedy, but instead of um, trying to self-medicate in a harmful way, you turned to God and, and, and relied on your faith in Christ. That makes people stop. It makes people stop, and then they say, if this is a transformation you've received, maybe God is kind. Maybe he is good. Maybe it is a good thing that he is God. Maybe I should come to him. Maybe he is glorious, right? It gets people thinking, and that's what leads people to see God for who he is and to glorify him. So your life, your, the fruit of your actions, the results that come about when you fellowship in the gospel, point people to God. So once again, we looked at, at what does it mean to fellowship in the gospel, and there's so many different avenues we could take this. There's so many different things we could really just 
sit in and bask in and talk about for a very long time. But our overview, right? Fellowshipping the gospel involves knowing the truth, having knowledge of the truth, growing in the teaching and the doctrine of the truth of what Jesus Christ has done. That's why it's so important that as believers, we spend time not only reading the word in our own personal quiet times, but coming to Bible study, coming to church right now, and allowing a sermon to feed your soul so that you can be more informed with your faith and that your faith can grow stronger and you can know God more. Perseverance. We need to continue believing in what we believe. And we're not alone in persevering. God will always help you to persevere. Just when you think you don't have the strength, if you simply come to him, he will give you more strength. And I am a testament of that. I've had doubts in my own life. I've had moments where I'm like, I I don't know sometimes. And I can fully attest to the fact that God has helped me through my faith. Otherwise, I would not be here preaching today. I'm proof. Sanctification and lifestyle. Right? Fellowshipping the gospel should result in us looking more like Jesus. Um, As we fellowship in the gospel, we want to share the gospel. We work to further God's kingdom. And when we encounter persecution for sharing the gospel, we understand that we're not alone. We have a whole family of believers with us that we fellowship with. Fellowshipping the gospel is also partaking the grace that God has given us. The fact that we are saved. We're saved by God's grace through faith. Right? We, we, We receive grace through each other. God uses each other to help us. Um, And then also we have love, oneness, and family as we fellowship in the gospel, and the gospel should result in fruits and results and actions that glorify God, that glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have the second session, and I want to give you a a brief preview. This is what we're going to be looking at with the second session. My hope and prayer is that it would be a time where we could practically understand some of these things pray for each other, and then do them and experience the transformation that God wants here at this local assembly. Some of the questions that we're going to be looking at is, what is the gospel? Put it in your own words. Are you prepared to share the good news? Practically speaking, right? Why is praying for each other so important? Why is anger, bitterness, and grudges, grudge holding so dangerous spiritually? And then what areas in fellowshipping the gospel do you feel weak in or is challenging for you? What areas do you feel strong or gifted in? Why does this glorify God? And in your quiet time, um, write down people to pray for and start to commit to doing that seriously and find active ways to live out the gospel. Be practical, put in the time, be transformed to know God. And so just as a closing, one thing that really helped me soak in this message was actually taking the entire section of verses and putting it into my own words. And I want to share this with you all because I think... um, It's practical, and it helps clarify some things which the Holy Spirit can use. But also, it just really struck me, and I want to share it with you. So what I wrote here was this, just literally putting everything in my my own words. And it says, I thank God every time I remember you. Every time I pray for you, I pray with joy. I pray for you with joy because you continue in your partnership with the gospel. I'm confident you will persevere in the gospel because God will build your faith until it's complete on Jesus' day of victory. My confidence is justified because I love you to the point that you are within my heart. This love is only possible if we are both going to be with God. That's why I'm confident. You are in my heart because in my suffering and work for the gospel, we share in God's grace. 
God also knows how much I miss and love you. I love you with the same love that Jesus loves you. I pray that your love overflows and would become perfect in knowledge and discernment and that you would become perfect. I pray that your life would overflow with good deeds that would show the universe how good God is to his glory and praise and our happiness, right? I almost started crying when I said that. I'm glad I got through it. <laughs> um, something about it, just, it just really hits you, you know? This is the kind of love that we should share. And this is, the, this is what God is calling us to. And it's possible. And so if you have time, I really want to encourage you, come down. We're going to talk about this some more. But in the same way that this is Paul's prayer for, for the church at that time, this is a prayer that I have for you all. This is a prayer I have for myself. This is a prayer that we should have for each other. Let's close. Dear Heavenly Father, we just want to thank you for your love. We thank you for your mercy and for your grace. Lord, I want to thank you that you have been very good and very kind to us. Lord, I want to thank you that you've been very good and kind to me. Um, that in the areas that I've struggled in my faith, you have strengthened me and even uh, used the struggle and allowed it to make me stronger. I wouldn't be able to give this sermon without that. Lord, I pray that we would grow in our knowledge of who you are, which starts with the gospel. That starts with what Jesus Christ has done for us. Lord, help the knowledge of the gospel not to simply remain theological head knowledge. Help it to become heart knowledge that we feel and that transforms the way we handle adversity, that transforms the way we handle pain or frustration or setback, that would transform the way we see success and pleasure and happiness. I pray, Lord, that we would truly be a committed body and a unified body here. Lord, I pray over the areas in which we have pain or hurt. I pray over the areas in which we may have bitterness toward each other. I pray over the areas in which we maybe have had disagreements which we haven't forgiven another person in this church for. Help us to let go of those things, Lord. As we fellowship in the gospel, help us to understand the riches we have, that we don't have to hold on to these things anymore. We can relax and we can forgive because we're forgiven and other people forgive us. Help us to understand that this is to your glory and that when people look and see how the gospel has changed us, it's going to make them look at you. And we pray that as they look at you, they place their faith in you. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.